Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce the guest for today, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. Your support is what helps maintain the ability for people to hear it, for people to be on it, for people to be assisted by it. And so thank you so much. Patreon.com slash indoctrination. And also, I have been putting out some webinars and other videos that are available on my website. So please go to rachelbernsteintherapy.com and check out some of the content that you can get there along with what I'm putting out through the podcast. It is my sincere hope that I can share as much information as I can from my over 30 years of experience in this field. I want to be able to let people know what I've learned about control, about manipulation, about what helps people heal or what helps people stay safe in the future so that this doesn't happen to them, so that we can collectively take the power away from the people out there who are lying in wait, who are wanting to control us and our loved ones. And so for today, we have a special guest. We have Renee Thomas. Renee holds a Bachelor of Science in Nursing while also being a tattoo artist and human rights activist. She was born and raised in the Unification Church, otherwise known as the Moonies, as a second-generation blessed child. A decade after leaving and processing life outside the cult, she now speaks about the experience publicly with the hashtag, hashtag XMooney. She'll also talk about what it means to be a blessed child. And she is the host of Blessed Child, a podcast where people can come together and speak frankly on their vast range of experiences within the moon cult and other systems of control. Blessed Child is a place for survivors to find community, deconstruct old belief systems, and share stories, very much like this podcast. It was great getting to know Renee, and I hope to talk to her again. Here she is now. I'm very happy to have Renee Thomas with me today. It is so nice to be able to meet you and to talk to you. I have been wanting to talk to someone about this group and the changes and what it's like to grow up in it and what it means also to be a blessed child. I've met some others and I know that there's so many terms that are interesting to people and they might make assumptions about what they mean, but it'd be great for you to define them for us. So before we start, if you can introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you're doing right now, and then we'll tell your story. My name is Renee Thomas, as you mentioned. I was born in the Unification Church as a second-generation blessed child. That was the title given to me. I am an ex-member of the Unification Church about 12 years out now, I want to say. I am a registered nurse, and I, I have a tattoo shop where I do tattoos, a private studio. I'm an artist. I have a family, I have two children, and I am very happy to be in this space of activism for human rights, for Unification Church members and ex-members alike. Okay. It's interesting you mentioned human rights. A lot of people ask me why I continue to do this work and why I care about it. And of course, it's, it's interesting to me psychologically 
but it really is about human rights. That is something that does drive things for me because rights are taken away without people's consent. And then how do you get them back? And how do you define what they are? And how do you feel that you have the right to have your rights and that you deserve to have rights? I mean, all these kinds of situations really play with your head. So tell me about also being a second generation blessed child. That means what about your family? I really like how you say it plays with your head. Yeah, it messes with your head. So to be a second gen, basically you have to understand the dynamics of the church and the milieu control as well as the sacred science. So to start, Reverend Moon proclaimed himself as the second coming of Jesus. And he said that everybody in this world is born of Satan's lineage. You, your parents, your cousins, your brothers, your sisters, everybody, they're all different. But once you follow moon, you can get the sacred holy marriage ceremony, the blessing ceremony, the mass weddings that are, you know, in the Guinness Book of World Record for biggest marriage ceremonies. So that's what you're seeing in those mass weddings is the change of blood lineage from Satan's blood lineage to what Deem called God's blood lineage under his divine authority. So now you've got these two dynamics, like the outside world and the inside world. So people that are born in the church are born free of Satan's lineage. They are now God's children with no original sin, which is the sin of Adam and Eve having sex, and then, well, Eve seducing Lucifer and then seducing Adam. And it's very misogynistic, but that's the rhetoric I was born with. So there's the us versus them there. And so we're raised with this set of rules that were different. No matter what we do, we have to protect this very special purity, this original nature, because we're born without sin. And the way to get that sin back is by having sex, premarital sex, outside of the blessing ceremony. So our whole life is basically to keep us pure virgins until we can get to the next blessing ceremony. And I eventually did that. But in that is a lot of psychological manipulation and control and loss of human rights. Like, you know, we weren't allowed to feel feelings or fall in love for the first time or develop relationships or even view ourselves as human. It was very odd to be a second generation blessed child. Right. Okay. How interesting that you weren't allowed to really view yourself as human. Talk about playing with your head. So you were then supposed to see yourself in what way? I mean, I know, of course, you know, being saved from being Satan's blood lineage. Okay. So you're supposed to see yourself in that way, but how else are you not really human? So growing up Mooney, there's this strict regime where you wake up in the mornings. I did at six o'clock in the morning with my family. It's called Hindike where you read Moon's words. And a lot of those words talk about mind-body unity and they train you to think of your body as just a vessel, a temporary vessel that you must have control over. So, you know, sleep, hunger, need for care, need for love, need for affection. These are all selfish needs. They're all basic, just bodily needs. And you should be able to overcome any of these. And this was my experience. I, I'm sure there's so many different experiences on a spectrum within the Unification Church because there's cults inside of cults. There's different organizations. Everybody has a different culture. But in the culture I was raised in, if I voiced that I had needs as like a child, I was looked at like, oh, that's your fallen nature. You're just being selfish or you're caning out. Or like, you know, I was sent to live away from my parents and 
when I told my dad I missed him, he's just like, oh, you're just an intention seeker. You need to do more conditions. If you were talking too much, like about your needs, I was told to do a, a no talking condition for 21 days, stuff like that. We were told to do a lot of things to gain control over our needs, like cold showers or fasting for seven days or bowing conditions or reading the divine principle conditions. There's just a lot of different types of control. And I don't know if this is normal for other cults too. You would be the expert on that. Yeah, it is. One of the things that I talk to a lot of people about who have left groups like this, whether they are the second gens, the SJs, or where whether they've gotten involved later on, they have so much of what you said. There is a disconnection from the self. There is the conditioned lack of responsiveness towards what your body is telling you it needs. There's a judgment placed on it and that people who are hungry, they don't really need to eat. That's a spiritual hunger. They need to fast more. They need to go longer without food. There is this need to do something that Dr. Margaret Singer used to talk about, and she was a professor who studied this for many years ago. And she said that within a cultic system, you learn to deny the evidence of your senses. And it is very hard then to take care of yourself and to understand why your head is hurting and to understand why you're having nightmares even. And then the other thing that you mentioned about being called things, that if you're having a natural reaction, like you say to your father, I I missed you, usually that's well, it should be met with, I missed you too. I mean, typically it should not have happened at all that you were sent away. <laughs> so let's start there. But if you were and you missed him, that would normally get, a, oh, honey, I miss you too. And instead you're told that you're an attention seeker, which is also very common to diagnose people if they're sharing something that's at all negative. That happens in the large group awareness trainings, that happens in Bible-based cults, that happens really across the board. If you're happy, great. But if you're sad, if you are anything else, if you're angry, that is all you working an angle, being manipulative, being weak, and you have to get rid of it. And, you know, I've thought over the years why that is. And I think that the leader just really wants everyone to be happy because if they're not, they might actually have to take responsibility for that and they don't want to. So, I mean, I'm, you know, you think after you hear about something happening for over 30 years, you wonder what the core is, what the reason is. And I think a lot of these cult leaders are actually not equipped to handle people's real emotions, nor are they really interested. So they just kind of pathologize them away. It makes me so sad to hear that this is so common, but also comforts me that you could acknowledge that. Yeah. So. In the Unification Church and in many cultic organizations, I think the cult leader does expose your vulnerabilities and then codes your weaknesses as sin and then enlargens that sin in order for you to be distracted by it. And so you just focus on it. And I think that it takes so much emotional energy to like believe that you're made of two parts, the sinner and the saint. And the sinner is so much bigger than the saint. Just to like keep working that narrative every single day is exhausting. And that's how I grew up. And I'm sure a lot of people did. Oh, yeah. So the whole idea of being a sinner, it's an interesting thing when you're in a cult because 
it's the whole rest of the world. Usually it's seen that way, that there is the small group of people who are anointed or who are protected and everyone else is bad or going to hell. It becomes then very hard. And I know we're skipping to the end before we've gotten to the beginning. And so we'll go back to the beginning, but it becomes very hard when you leave because then you're one of those people who you have been taught to look down upon. And that's hard. You actually feel like you're sort of falling into this abyss, the world, the 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 worldly world that is non-spiritual, that's not protected. And you're now among the people who you uh, thought were less than. So it's an interesting thing to have to deal, to have to grapple with that. I think people don't realize that happens so often as well. Yeah. I think it's a place called limbo. And for me, it was physically painful like because I had been conditioned. So I don't know if other people experienced, but I felt a physical like bone shattering pain when I fell into limbo. It was agonizing, but this is a psychological as well as a political, a spiritual cult. So there's a lot of different aspects that compounded. And just for reference, I say sinner, but actually in the unification church, we call it fallen nature and saint we call original nature or I mean, second gen bus child. So I'm kind of talking between cult speak and normal speak. So the listener could understand. Right. So the blessed children that come from these unions put together by Reverend Moon. So I remember when I was living in New York for a period of time, one of the weddings actually was taking place at Madison Square Garden. And there were thousands and thousands and thousands of couples and there are pictures you can find online and it looks photoshopped, but it's not <laughs> because, you know, you have all these women in rows and they're all wearing similar, if not the same dresses and men in rows wearing similar, if not the exact same outfits. And from talking to a number of people who left, who were matched up in this way, some hadn't met each other before. Some didn't speak the same language they had to somehow make it work. And it's hard enough to make a relationship work when you do know the person, when you do love the person and you speak the same language. So I can only imagine the situation that thousands of couples have been put in where they have to somehow see this as a perfect union, even if it's far from it. That's a good point. Uh, my parents were put together. I think this is the Madison Square Garden, July 1982, the mass wedding. It's a very significant one for us blessed children because most of our, a lot of our parents were put together at that time. In the Unification Church, you're conditioned and you go to these blessing workshops to prepare for these blessings. And you're conditioned to believe that any suffering that occurs in these marriages is a test for you to pass, to get to completion, perfection, the kingdom of heaven on earth. These little challenges and your struggles in the, in the marriage are holding a mirror to your flaws and your faults. And so your defenses are down. You can't register if you're being abused or assaulted or manipulated or neglected because anytime your body tells you something's wrong, your mind is going to say that that is just your fallen nature. And you need to work through that. That is your problem and nobody else's. So it keeps you locked in these potentially abusive relationships. I know some people are happy, so I'm not going to say it's for everybody. But in my situation and my, with my parents, it was very damaging. 
So let's talk a little bit more then about first the church itself, because it has developed into many different incarnations, one that's been quite startling, more recent development, and to talk a little bit about that. So that's more general. Then we'll go more personal about your story and your upbringing, and then you now. So what can you tell us about the church and what it's up to? Because it's up to a lot of things. Yeah, I'm so glad people are paying attention, asking the right questions, because there has been a lot of activists speaking about Unification Church for many years now, and I feel like our cult is the best kept secret. (laughs) So first of all, if you're curious about the Unification Church, I'm glad. The Unification Church was started in the 1950s by a Sun Myung Moon, and at first he called it the Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of Christianity, I believe, and man, This is the point in which the Hydra heads start just branching off. So do you want to know the business aspects, the political aspects, the religious aspects, or the human trafficking? Because it goes off into four different directions. Um, The answer to those four questions is yes. (laughs) Take it anywhere you want it to go. Oh, man. Well, I do know I remember being kind of blown away that suddenly I found out that they owned the Washington Times. Okay, so you want to go political. (laughs) Let's start political because I remember that being shocking and people still, they they don't know that, you know, the the news they're getting is being filtered through this group. So Moon had a bunch of his followers, we call them first gen in the 1970s, going door to door, giving free newspapers in New York City and all over the East Coast and probably all over the world because he has multiple newspapers. It's not just the Washington Times. There's also Sege Ilbo, Sekai Nippon in Japan, and there's also one in South America. So there's multiple media outlets. They started with a bunch of devout missionaries going around spreading the rhetoric of anti-communism and world peace and world Christianity and interracial marriages. Because remember, this is the 1970s when interracial marriages are very much looked down upon. Reverend Moon has all these people going door to door, selling, not even selling, giving away media. One of the women, and this is a common practice in the Unification Church, is to send missionaries door to door by themselves. One of the women was in an apartment complex in New York, New York City. She's going door to door to door, and she never came back. Her name was Kristen Cost or Coast. She was murdered and thrown off of a balcony. That didn't stop Moon from proselytizing his members and and spreading more media. In fact, like the next year, he established the Washington Times uh, off of this labor, off of this labor. These people were labor trafficked. He changed the name as Washington Times was established, I want to say like 1982. He wanted to do that to influence politics. There was no separation between politics, religion, business. In the Unification Church, Moon's rhetoric is that the whole world belongs to Satan. And so we must reclaim the whole world, be it you want to be an actor or businessman or a politician or the president of the United States. That's fine. That is not outside of the principles. There is no limiting principles here. The world needs to be taken over by Reverend Moon and our directives. So, yeah, they established the Washington Times. That got into the hands of Nixon and Reagan and all of these presidents, even Donald Trump now and Mike Pence and Newt Gingrich and Steve Bannon. They all promote the Washington Times. They all, all of those people have promoted Sun Myung Moon in the American history. Truly incredible. And I think people also don't realize how many land holdings they have, how much property and money, you know, it's incredible. Yeah, even uh, 
entertainment. They had the Karav Dance Academy or the Little Angels Ballet, or they had media companies, the New Yorker Hotel. So interesting. You know, when I first started doing this work, uh, predating my getting involved, my my father cared about this issue a lot because of a family member getting involved. And he would go around talking about cults and kind of preparing people who were in high school, who were about to go off to college and might come across the Unification Church or a front name for it, not knowing that it was the Unification Church and they might get involved and have to drop out of school, et cetera. And when I started doing the work, Scientology were the harassers and still are of me. But for my dad, it was the Unification Church. They were the ones who would be calling the house in the middle of the night and being threatening. It's very interesting. And they are not doing that as much anymore, although they are getting threatening in other ways, which we'll talk about. I'm curious then about this kind of infusion and overlapping into the public kind of lexicon, how people look at things and how people talk about things, that it's through a news article from the Washington Times or wherever else, but that the source is then from our bias going to be tainted. And then recently there was an event. So I want to be able to mention the event and if you can talk about it, because it, it kind of comes together as this perfect storm of feeling entitled, feeling you have the power, having this feeling like you want to have some say over what's happening in the world politically. And so if you can talk about what happened in the news just recently, then we'll go back to other things. So there's a lot of things that happen in the news that you guys don't know is related to the Unification Church. But the most recent one I think you're hinting at is the assassination of Shinzo Abe by alleged Tetsuya Yamagami in Japan. And Shinzo Abe, if you don't know, was the prime minister. And you might be asking yourself, how are those even connected? And it goes back to what I mentioned earlier. In the 1950s, there are ties with Reverend Moon, the LDP, Nobusuke Kishi, which is Shinzo Abe's grandfather, World Anti-Communist League, FLF, which is the Freedom Leadership Foundation. Then you've got uh, International Federation for Victory Over Communism. And basically, you know, I'm not a political scientist, but I could just tell you those names. And if you look, you will see ties with Bohi Pak, Reverend Moon, Nobusuke Kishi, uh, Sasakawa, just, just a lot of um, very shady characters. Right. Oh, it's so interesting. When you're saying that there are a lot of other things in the news that are connected to Unification Church and people might not know, it's so important to do your research. It's so important to try to find out the source of information and why you're reading that article. And also, oftentimes, the headings are so skewed so that you have already a certain feeling about what happened based on you know the very cleverly worded heading. And so... We all know now to a greater degree that we're being manipulated. I'm wondering then going to when you were saying the Hydra, the Hydra head, about going into some of the other areas where they are having their manipulation and using their manipulation on people moving away from kind of the geopolitical. All of these organizations, I want to make it crystal clear, are run by innocent people who are devoting their time for an idea of world peace. So I want to make it clear that this is human trafficking under intense coercion and fraud. Fraud is probably the number one because Reverend Moon, I want to say on this 
podcast is 100% not the Messiah. Right, exactly. And human trafficking, because, you know, this is a word that is also becoming more readily defined and people are understanding that this happens and it happens in different places. And there are a lot of cult groups now that are being defined that way, that that is what they engage in and kind of slave labor and human trafficking. So how is that done within the Unification Church? First, you have to understand the definition of human trafficking by like the Department of Defense is, you know, acquiring goods or services through the use of force, fraud, or coercion. And you know, I, I believe my existence and labor within the Unification Church falls into those categories. So, I mean, we volunteer for years at a time to build companies, schools, we work uh, festivals, we do a lot of piecework. And I'm quoting, you know, piecework because it's actually just manual labor for the Moon family and the people that are running it. They're billionaires. I think it was like $3.5 billion is the net worth of Hawk Jahan Moon. And then the whole organization is triple that, if not a hundred times that. Right. I remember uh, George Bush speaking at one of their World Peace Conventions meetings. You know, there are a lot of people they've been able to get to kind of, well, I want to say like launder their reputation to make it sort of seem like they are fine or they're just a church. Okay. So we covered human trafficking and I'm so glad you brought that up. And what's happening politically, I know also there have been some pictures that people have come across on the internet about people holding AK-47s while in a service. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah, that's Sean Moon's branch. Sean Moon is the son of Reverend Moon. There was a falling out, you could say, when Reverend Moon died, who would be the inheritor and leader, spiritual leader of the Unification Church. And that's where... Again, another fork in the road happened. There's Hawk Jahan's original group with Family Federation for World Peace. There's Preston Moon's group with GPF. And I might get these um, organizations confused because there's literally thousands of front names. But you're asking about the Rod of Iron Ministries. So that's Sean Moon's group. And you might be thinking, wow, AK-47s, that's new. But I want to make it like crystal clear that Moon also had weapons factories a long time ago. Long before Sean Moon started peddling his AR-15 with Trump's face engraved in it, saying, make America great again, like long before Trump's son visited car arms in Pennsylvania, like long before that, Moon started a weapons factory in South Korea. I think it was called Tongil. And that's a conglomerate. There's a lot of different businesses under that group. There's Tongil Heavy Industries that branched there's Salo, Salo Japan, that's a weapons factory. And then there's Car Arms, Magnum Research, and Auto Ordinance. And all of those are owned by the Moon family. So they've been making weapons for decades. This is not new. It's just Sean's putting a new spin on it, like the rod of iron is an AK. And um, they should worship the weapon. You know, Moon introduced the idea of peace police, peace militia. That was, I think, in like 2003 when he wanted to launch a political party in Korea, South Korea. So we've been very invested in politics and weapons for a very long time. So it's not as shocking for me because I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the normal evolution of this cult. Right. Okay. And so it is going to be surprising for other people, especially because the phrase world peace is used over and over and over again. And so... Again, it's a way of making it seem like it is this peace-loving 
organization and it doesn't at all fit with what's really happening. And, you know, welcome to cult land. I mean, this is sort of how it happens and that it's not just that they're saying something slightly different. It's like opposite day every day within a cult. And so that's kind of the head spinning part of a lot of this too. And like what's real and what's, what's not. I'm wondering also about the locations that they used to own. I remember going to visit Terrytown, and I don't know if they still have these places, these compounds. Yeah. So Reverend Moon was a man that traveled all the time, and he made sure to have a mansion on every like major geopolitical location. So we called these like North Garden, Morning Garden, Belvedere, like uh, East Garden. But really, they're just mansions that are run on labor trafficking. Literally, people live there to operate these mansions for Moon when he visited. And we would all gather there when he spoke. The locations, I mean, there's one in Kodiak, Alaska, where they have a fishing company because, you know, they have a monopoly with the fishing industry in the United States. So I remember going to Kodiak. I mean, there's one in Belvedere, East Garden, Terrytown, New York. That's actually lived there for a little while. There's a lot of mansions. Moon's got a lot of money. I think there's some in South America, Korea, obviously, that with the Peace Palace, anywhere you can think of. Incredible. That's so spiritual, isn't it? To have to have a mansion everywhere. Well, at least we're invited. Like we get to, <laughs> we get to like kiss his feet there. We get we get to kiss his feet there. Right. Um, uh, early on in the beginning of the podcast, I had people on who I've known for a long time, uh, Cynthia Lilly and her daughter, Catherine, who Catherine was at Terrytown. And so Cynthia brought uh, Today Show crew with her to Terrytown and they filmed her trying to get her daughter's attention, trying to get her daughter to say that she'll come home. And it didn't happen then because she had her handler basically standing right there next to her and making sure that she didn't leave. She eventually did leave. And they, so there is an episode, I think actually two episodes where they are on talking about reunifying themselves actually after they were pulled apart. And there are many stories of families being torn apart and needing to come back together. Again, you know, when the, a group like the Unification Church uses the word unification or unity, you don't think about people being torn apart and families being torn apart. You know, it really does make you think about it in a very innocent way, very different from how it plays out. So I'm wondering if there's anything else that's general you wanted to cover, you want people to know about the group before we tell your story. Oh, no, I'm sure people's heads are spinning right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So tell <laughs> so tell us about you. So you were saying that, you know, it was pretty regimented. You would need to get up early. You were separated from your family. What else can you let us know? I just want to clarify that I am only speaking from my perspective and opinion. And um, I am probably referencing the church of the past. So maybe everything I said might be a little bit different now in terms of what what they own property wise. I was the fourth child born to two parents, a Japanese woman and an American man in the 80s and man, where do you even start? You know, it's like being born an American citizen, like you don't know there's something else or a different culture. We live in America. This is the way things are done. So I guess that's what it was like being born into this as a second generation Unification Church member. Like, this is the way things are. This is the way things are done. This is our culture. Like, what's so weird about that? Uh, especially because we were so big. You know, I, we would go to Terrytown or we, we would go to the Manhattan Center. We had college campuses. 
We had elementary schools. We had church homes all over the United States. It felt very real. It felt so, so real to be born into the Unification Church. It felt like we really were going to save the world, like with our international arranged marriages that created peace through blood lineage. I was told from the beginning that I was different and special and needed to be protected on the outside. But on the inside, I was torn apart from the beginning. You know what I mean? Like, Right, right. You know, and and I know you asked before about it. Does this happen in other groups? So I want to just jump in and say most people I work with talk about feeling like they were made to feel less than they were made to feel kind of fragmented, like there was something inherently wrong with them. They needed to be watched. They couldn't trust themselves. And at the same time, made to feel superior to everyone else in the world. So you were kind of lowered and then had elevated as as right as above. Right. And it's very hard, I think, for a lot of people leaving to feel okay about themselves, to feel like they are like other people and they have the same rights and deserve the same things, but also just to look at people eye to eye that you don't have, you're not going to be seen as less than, and you don't have to think of yourself as superior. And so it's a very common thing that you you're describing, but yeah, so you were torn apart in these ways, like you were mentioning that you weren't allowed to have your feelings or what else was going on? Not that that's insignificant, because I think that's at the root of so much of this, but what else was happening? Well, I do want to make the point that like, unlike other cults, ours was very successful politically and business-wise. So like, I saw my world through the lens of a Unification Church member. If I felt, I never felt like it was a small world. Like I could drive down the highway 97 and see multiple Unification Church businesses that you wouldn't recognize. But UV3, church business, you know, I could eat sushi and be like, yeah. I mean, I didn't know about the sushi part until later, but there was other things that was really hard to feel like my feelings of doubt were significant enough to doubt the movement. I'm like, I must be wrong because this is obviously right. Like we've got presidents speaking at our events. We've got prime ministers. This is such a big movement. Like people are talking about peace. Like, why do I feel like something's wrong? I must be selfish. I must be, this must be my fallen nature. There must be something wrong with me. Okay. Wow. You know, being raised feeling that way, there must be something wrong with me. When you have that feeling, sometimes then you feel like you're not worthy. You feel deserving of being treated a certain way, or you just don't feel like life is going to get better because you're inherently flawed. There's so much that can be a part of how you feel about yourself because of that. Yeah. And then it's masked with the superiority complex. Like a shallow narcissist, like superiority complex that acts as like a veneer or a shield. And so sometimes you appear completely whole on the outside. And so it's so hard to help people like us because we look like we've got it together. It's like this perfect thought reform system of control in the Unification Church that makes you just good enough to blend in. Right, right. Um, I think most people also they have this sense that they're fine or they come across like they're fine because they've learned to appear fine because you're supposed to be happy. And so if you betray that, if you show that you're actually miserable, then that's not going to bode well for you. So yeah, a lot of people look fine (laughs) and they're not at all there 
they feel like a wreck inside, but they've learned how to act. And I'm sure you've heard of the condition alexithemia. Oh, yeah. Oh, talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I feel like myself and many other second generation blessed children were raised to ignore our bodily cues and sensations um, because they were coded as selfish, right? So a lot of us in leaving find it difficult. I especially find it difficult when I first started leaving to articulate my feelings. Even in the movement, I would be fundraising for the church. And and when I got a sale, I would start crying. Tears would start streaming down my face. And I would just smile through it. And thank you so much. I'm so grateful. But my body knew that I was homeless, selling product door to door for Moon and his organization, sleeping on the streets for a year, not showering anywhere but the ocean. This is the fundraising programs that they have you do. And I was crying because I needed help but I never registered those feelings. That is how detached I was from my body, that I was being labor trafficked in every sense of the word and didn't even register that I needed help. And they would do that for a while. And that was when I was 17 years old. And uh, I think only now in my 30s, I'm starting to actually register my body's feelings as valid. My emotions are valid and I can feel those sensations. And I just want to say, if anybody's out there, it's possible to get to know yourself, no matter how old you are. Uh, oh, I'm so glad you said that. And when you said, if there's anyone out there, yes, I, <laughs> there are, you know, these podcasts, it's really lovely. Actually, there are many thousands of listens per week and it's wonderful. And I hear from a lot of people who will say, I learned to not dismiss my emotions by hearing people tell their story, but also I learned to not put myself down for having them. And once you're in the world and you get to see that someone is upset about something and it's okay, or there might actually be some compassion, believe it or not, that comes your way because you're having a hard day, which would not be the way it would be treated there. That when someone says, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. For former cult members, they'll say that the response they get just the natural response they get from other people actually helps inform them that what they're feeling is real and normal and probably should have been attended to in that way before because it's impacting the person they're telling it to in this kind of lovely way. And then it really validates, wow, this is real. This is real. Yes. (laughs) Oh, man. That just makes me really excited. I get so excited about this. I read about these things called mirror neurons. And so in the cult, we're raised to reflect each other's indifference to the suffering that we're going through because it's coded as getting to know God's heart, God's suffering heart. In the Unification Church, it's a God of a suffering heart who has been lonely since the birth of all Satan's children. So anytime you're suffering, it's coded as like, uh, well, Imagine the 6,000 years that God has suffered alone watching Satan raise his children. It's like, so we've normalized torture and abuse and neglect and labor trafficking. And then being able to tell our stories and seeing the look of shock on someone else's face. It's like, oh, my, my mirror neurons are waking up and realizing, oh, there's a different way. There is a different way to view this. And it makes me feel like a whole person a little bit more than the way I viewed myself in the cult. Right. Because there's a deadening. There's a desensitization. 
And suddenly when something happens, you could even be bleeding and someone comes over and says, are you okay? Can I get you something? And you realize what happens to me matters and it even matters to other people. Right. Yeah. Like tend this wound. It's yeah. A dead and a numb inside. So many people I talk to are like, yeah, I feel so numb inside and I'm trying to integrate. And it's a, it's a challenge. It's not easy, but it's possible. It is possible. I think sometimes people, and then I want to hear more about how you left. Sometimes people are worried about suddenly having feelings because they're afraid that once they start to have them, they won't be able to stop. They won't be able to maintain them, control them. It's like people who have withheld their anger for many years. They're actually afraid they're just going to explode and they're going to go off and not be able to regroup. And it often does not happen that way. You release it and then you find this sort of homeostasis. You find the place where you can feel some calm. So I don't want people to be afraid of suddenly having these emotions and letting them out. It won't overtake you. It might feel out of control for a while because you've been storing them. There's an accumulation over years and you might not like that you're having these emotions because you might feel like people might be seeing you a certain way or you might be seeing yourself in a certain way, but you get through that. It's a transitional time. It's not permanent. I feel like I'm an open book. You just read the last two years of my life. Oh, Oh, wow. Okay. So, and that's without me knowing you. So that's another way of normalizing your experience. So this is what happens. It's very common. All right. So then how did you leave and what age were you and what, what went on there? I think I left thousands of times. Oh, that's beautifully said, actually. Yeah. I have left thousands of times. The biggest ones were last year after the January 6th insurrection and a bunch of Moonies were there led by Sean Moon. I woke up and I said, you know what? I'm actually going to talk publicly about this because this is not okay. This is at a point where it is like no longer okay. It is at a national level. This is not okay. So I left something there. And that's when I started creating a lot of art about the Unification Church. And I feel like that was the last time I left. The last time I left before that was when I was 21, after I had received the mass wedding blessing by Reverend Moon, Sun Young Moon. And that didn't work out. And I realized, you know, the sacred science was flawed. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been leaving. There's a lot of stories I could tell you about little instances where I was born and then I saw through a lot of the doctrine. And that took, but it took years. It didn't matter if I didn't believe because the whole social structure my family structure, my educational support system, my work, everything I did was within the realm of the Unification Church. So it didn't really matter what I believed in. I was still part of the massive organization that is the Unification Church. Interesting. That makes sense because I guess if it's an insular community, then it has its own culture. And then you're just part of that culture. And you might not be thinking about things in the same way as another person, but you're still part of it. Okay. So how old, when you said you you left a thousand times, it's just so, yes, so many people wish they had left a thousand times. They, they left incrementally so many times. Um, and a lot of people describe being physically in, but emotionally out and in that limbo. So then how did you finally leave, leave? Oh, man. <laughs> I got blessed. Um, It didn't work out, needless to say. (laughs) 
he was like 19. I was like 20. We were children. We stayed together for maybe a couple years or a year, something like that. And it didn't work out and I had to leave. So I packed up my Prius with all of my belongings and I traveled the country and I lived out of my car for a few months and it was amazing. I retested all the boundaries. I visited all of my friends in the church. I stopped at every house I could. I stopped in every city. I got a tattoo (laughs) by another church, you know, ex-member now. And I said goodbye. I said my glorious farewell. It was the summer I turned, you know, 21, I think. I went to a camp, Camp Chautauqua, and I I led a group and I knew it was going to be, I kind of knew it was going to be my last time singing those holy songs, feeling like an elder and an unni or nuna, and I just kind of relished in it. I'm wondering about during that time, even living in your car, when you were, um, you talked about boundaries. So can you talk about what you were doing, what you were testing out? Oh, yeah. I made out with boys. <laughs> uh-huh. I went to parties. I drank beer. I jumped off cliffs, went shopping at all the cool Goodwills in California. I explored a sense of personal style. And I met up with three other women that were leaving the church, all three of us. We caravaned. It was like a, a caravan of us leaving. We were traveling across the country, but also discovering like our strength. Incredible. That's beautiful. And discovering your strength. What strengths did you realize you had? Yeah, I could say no. I didn't have to view myself as fallen for having fun and not judging people for not being in the church or not judging myself for wanting to live, you know, or having personal preferences. Right. Moving out of something where it's cookie cutter, where there's conformity, having personal preferences is a very bold move and it's not allowed. Uh, I mean, you can have them, but you can't express them and you can't feel good about them. And so I, I think about then you really just saying goodbye and having to leave everyone. And so who in your family is still there? This is going to be hard for me to talk about. So my, my mom is still in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like I lost my, my mom to the church. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know why I'm, I don't know why it's so hard for me to talk about. Um, she left a long time ago, a long, a long time ago. It's a really weird dynamic because he put my parents together in a miserable situation and commanded them to have children. So it's really complicated because if it didn't happen, I wouldn't be here. But also because it happened, I don't have her. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand you wanting to show gratitude that you exist. <laughs> I'm glad you're happy about that. But to go back to generalizing the message, um, because I know it's hard to talk about it personally, and you can share as much or as little as you want in terms of your own personal emotions here. But when people are involved in some sort of religious organization or any kind of cultic group that takes them over, the group and the leaders stand squarely between everyone, really, especially between the people who stay and the people who leave. And you can feel like someone has chosen someone over you or chosen something over you. And that's something that I hear time and time again. And it's hard because that person in can still love you. But when someone loves you, you want want to be their priority. And within a cultic system, 
that rarely comes across. Yeah, I think Moon put himself between everybody. He always needed to be in the center. It was called center your relationship on God. But he, in turn, was God. I mean, he he proclaimed himself greater than God in so little words. We prayed in his name. But to be clear, my mom, I I haven't lived with her since I was seven. It's a long mother wound. <laughs> um, it's, it's just unfortunate that when I became an activist last year, I hadn't heard from her in years. But the only thing she had to say to me was, if you don't love Reverend Moon, then somebody didn't raise you right. <laughs> Um, but she, she chose not to. Re- yeah, said that too. Okay, okay. I said, "Well, where the hell were you?" Right. <laughs> right. That's going to usually be said by someone outside of your family, not by your parent, who is the one raising you. Yeah. Anyways, I know that she was marriage traffic, labor traffic. She was. She's a Japanese person who has a lot of trauma because Moon used Japan as his personal bank account and human slave ship. So, I mean, it's a lot of, it's a lot of complex issues. It's not black and white. There is no black and white here. Right. No. Okay. And so then moving into more present time, you have a career that is artistic, that is about helping people, I think, with their own self-expression, which is just a beautiful way of bringing this full circle. And so I'm wondering about that for you and how you've seen that play out in the choices you've made for your career. And then also talking about yourself as a parent. Right. I guess my career started as, let's see, I went from selling things on the street for the church to coming home and selling things on the street for me. And then I became a bartender. And I wanted to help people. And that was a place where I could deprogram from the thought reform of the Unification Church because I got to interface with a lot of different people. And because it's a small town, I got to interface with a lot of the same people for a very long time. So I could realize that everybody is human. There's a story behind everybody. And it could get rid of this complex guilt that I felt and this veneer that I was given, that I was different, and I could realize everybody's the same. And I want to help them. You know, I want to help people because it helps me to help them. So while I was a bartender, I went to college and got my nursing degree. And I became a nurse. And I got to help people. And I got to talk to people. And then I saw some limitations in that because of the way the system runs, the healthcare system. And there's a lot of limitations to floor nursing, you know, and I felt like I needed something else. And all this time, I held my story inside. I, I didn't even want to open the floodgates of I was born in a cult. I just was operating as best as I could to just try to integrate as a whole person and see the world where we were all people. That was my journey for the last 10 years. I just wanted to see people. I just wanted to feel human. I just had to get rid of that shell. And that's why career brought me to art. COVID happened. I lost daycare for my kids and I couldn't work as a nurse anymore. I had to figure something else out, but I also had this longing, you know, to figure myself out too. And I've always been an artist, even in the church. I started drawing when I was a child and I had a good friend, shout out to Red the Inker, who was like, I could teach a monkey how to tattoo, come on down to the tattoo shop and I'll show you a thing or two. And I thought it was just going to be a day, a day hangout, you know? 
But I picked up that tattoo machine and I've never gone back. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. There's a beauty in being able to be in community with people who want to tell their stories on their skin or honor their loved ones. And it's a sacred art to have the privilege to tattoo on somebody. And it's also therapeutic for me because it brings me into my body. I have to be in my body. I have to have my hands on somebody else's body. I have to be in the moment. I have to live. Yeah, I have to live. I have to live right now (laughs) because these movements are forever. So it's the perfect place for me to connect and to live and to express. And so that's my journey as of now. Uh, I love that. I never thought about that. But right, if you are using your body to do something to someone else's and it has to be exact, then right, you have to be totally present and have your mind connected to your body. That is really fascinating. I'd never thought about that. Okay. So then you got into a relationship and you became yes, a parent and without models for kind of how to do that. How did you do that? Wow. It's amazing. It started as at the bar (laughs) where I was learning how to be human. Um, My husband was the liquor supplier. So he worked at the liquor store down the road from the bar. And I had to go get the liquor every Sunday from the liquor store. And I met him there. And we we became friends. He started working at the bar, naturally, because he wanted to be near me, of course, um, as the bar back and bartender. And we became good friends. It was just friendship. It was platonic at first. I was really wild, throwing parties after work, doing crazy things. I had bought a house that was dilapidated. Well, okay, I was labor trafficked on OLT, a fundraising program in the Moonies. And I made that hundreds of thousands of dollars a week. And we would, every, every time we capped at five grand, we'd make a deposit to the Moons or the organization or whatever. So we never had more than $5,000 in the van that we lived in. And so the only good thing I got from being labor trafficked by the moons is that I never spent money. (laughs) I learned how to save money. Yeah. So as a bartender, I saved $20,000 and had it under my bed. And I bought a house with that. And you can imagine the kind of house $20,000 can buy. It had no floors. It had holes in the roof. There was cats crawling up into the floor because there was no floor. But I had parties there. And my husband, now husband, I guess he saw some red flags. He's like, is this chick okay? <laughs> I would I would have parties. He would come and then he realized everybody's too drunk and I've lost my mind. So he would buy everybody food, make sure everybody got fed, get them the hell out of my house <laughs> <laughs> and then lock the door. And I would see him the next day at work. Not sure what had happened. Like, <laughs> Wow. Okay. But naturally protective. Naturally so protective. He's a guardian type. Thank God that he sent my husband my way because he saved my life. I mean, many times. And, uh, you know, through through those acts of kindness and just a true show of character, I fell in love with him. And uh, we got married two years after that. And then we had a kid and then we had another kid and we're still married. And he has helped me tremendously on my healing journey. He's my best friend. He teaches me that it's okay to feel my feelings. He creates a safe place. He's my best friend. And I got really lucky. 
yeah, you did get really lucky. And you also, I'm sure, bring a lot to the table too. (laughs) (laughs) I want you to be able to give yourself credit, which is going to be an unnatural thing to do. (laughs) But I think, you know, you're going to have a lot of insights about how people should treat each other. And even if your models were the opposite of how you do it, still, that is its own model. And now as a parent, how do your experiences shift how you are with your kids and their lives and their emotions, etc. So that's a really good question. I I come from a family with no roots, I would say. You know, it was the community roots and that's not something I want to be part of anymore. So I felt very free floating and my husband comes from a very established family here in the south with generations of good models and examples. So My children are lucky enough to have grandparents and a network where we, I can adapt a new culture through this. We celebrate holidays and birthdays and make big deals about soccer games and basketball games and things I wasn't raised with. We make a big deal about accomplishments or hobbies or interests. We give our children autonomy and love and attention. We read books to them at night. We do our homework together. We go on trips as much as we can. We try new foods together. There's this culture that is so new to me. And at first, it was very hard for me to not feel some grief that I didn't have that. But my oldest is about to turn six. In the last couple of years, I've felt great change where I've accepted that it's okay to reparent yourself and your children at the same time and deal with and hold space for all these difficult emotions. And I think communication is the most important thing and acknowledging each other in this space that we share for these moments, it's not going to be forever. So we do our best, you know? Wow. I think you just, you just, um, kind of wrote a parenting guide. Oh, (laughs) I mean, that really, it's really, really wonderful thing about spending time about being interested in the things your kids are interested in showing them that it matters to you. They matter to you. And having fun, I'm sure too, having things be light, which is going to be unusual. Also, just knowing that you are giving yourself a chance to reparent yourself through your work and do a lot that's healing. Yes, it is also true that when people have kids, sometimes there is this like dagger of pain where you say, Now that I see how naturally protective I feel towards this person, I could never send them away. I could never put something between me and them. It wouldn't be natural for me. How could that have been natural for my parents? Right? It is a hard thing. It's a hard thing to look at. Um, And so I understand that feeling. That is a hard one. Yeah, it is. Okay. So what else, just as we're finishing up, what would you like us to know about the group, about your experience, anything that you wanted to be able to impart? You know, when I was leaving, I left behind an entire community, an entire world. And I felt like there wasn't any place to be in limbo. You had to hold all of that to yourself. And now there are large networks for deconstruction. There are lots of resources for Unification Church members questioning or deciding to leave. I do want to say, you know, there is the XMooney hashtag on Instagram. There are multiple podcasts 
I have one myself. It's Blessed Child Podcast. And there's a dozen others. I think it is important to create space for people in limbo because without that support system, there are many people who succumb to the psychological pressures that we were raised in. And we fall into depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, psychosis. This limbo is, it's a dangerous place to be in alone. So yeah, I want to say that there is support systems in place through ICSA, through these podcasts. And yeah, if you find yourself in limbo, please reach out. Like We're creating community. Yeah, it's hard to heal alone. And we'll offer links in the bylines, but if you can let people know the name of your podcast and where people can find you, that would be great. Okay. Um, my podcast is Blessed Child Podcast. It's a place where we can tell the real stories about what it meant to be a blessed child instead of the veneer that we were given. You can find my art or my tattoos on Ren Robot Art. And yeah, any imparting wisdom is please value yourself, have compassion for yourself. And yeah, know that you're worth it. Yeah. You're worth making the the hard steps. All of this is very hard to do. It's hard to feel things. Feelings are difficult. It is. I'm glad you're talking about support systems. There are suicides that take place where people feel very much alone and they feel like there aren't choices out there for them. And, and it's also very hard to think about getting counseling when you don't have a place to live, you have no means of really supporting yourself in other ways. Cause sometimes people leave without skills and, or without the kind of education they need. And so support systems are good for that too, where they can take care of each other and buy food for you or f- help you find a place to live and also emotionally support you. There are so many cults that have now been around for so long. And it just means that there are going to be millions of former members. So no one has to feel alone. And even if you came from a group where maybe there were three people in it, your experiences are probably going to overlap so much because the methods of control that are used overlap so much that you can find a home with other people who are from other groups So I just don't want anyone to feel isolated in their recovery and their healing. I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah. Something you just said, I'm wondering, you would probably know more. Is there any financial resources in place that people can access after leaving a cult? Because being homeless was one of the biggest challenges on leaving. I lived in my car. I say distanced myself from my family who would re-indoctrinate me. There was no place unless you were very resilient and very determined to get out. It's a hard place to be in. And it shouldn't, I mean, I would really hope, I don't know if domestic violence places, shelters take survivors. I consider what was done to me violence without physical assault. It was emotional, mental, financial. Right. Right. I think also about the school children who are homeless when, how are they supposed to focus on writing an English paper? <laughs> what? They don't know where they're going to be that night. They don't know if they're going to have dinner. P- people's basic needs do need to be taken care of. It's fundamental. And other people have the means to help. There are a couple of funds, but not enough. And there really do need to be more. And so if anyone's listening and they want to put something together, please do. There are some that are for particular groups, like former members of particular groups, but 
I'm sure they're willing to open their doors to other people as well. So they do exist, but they're few and far between, fewer and farther between than they should be. But yeah, I hope that motivates someone who's listening to want to put something together. Thank you. I love ending on a call of action because, yeah, I I know many second-gen blessed children feel trapped or have completed suicide because these systems of control are enormous and very, very difficult to get out of. So I guess that's what I would like to end on. It was so nice to talk to you and to get to know you and to hear about your experiences. And I know that, you know, there are hours more um, conversations we could have and stories to share. But I think this is a good start. If you ever want to talk more, please let me know. And I'm sure the people listening are going to be drawn into your story and probably want to hear more as well. So we'll probably be back in touch. But I wish you well. And I wish you a good, fun, rich, wonderful day with your family. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Renee for sharing so much about her experience. I'm so glad that she is working on not only healing herself, but simultaneously providing a forum for people within the community, providing a place where people can hear people's stories and share people's stories. It's an interesting thing when you are raised being called something that you're not feeling you are, that you're being called a blessed child, but you're not really feeling like your life is very blessed. There is a disconnection There is a dissociation that takes place, a splitting off from this thing that you're supposed to be and the thing that you actually really feel like. The way other people are meant to view you, but the way you really view yourself feels so different. It is disconcerting and it is disorienting. So much of what she talked about too is that in the choices she's making now about the things that she's doing and the job that she has, she's wanting to feel connected to the self. She's wanting to really merge those parts of herself no longer be what people saw her as or how she was supposed to see herself or how she was supposed to feel and have it be different from who she is, but instead be connected, be integrated. It is so, so, so important. What I think is so important too was that she talked a lot about feeling like she was being diagnosed, she was being insulted. And that happens so often within cultic groups that you're made to feel that your natural human instincts, your natural emotions are somehow diagnosable. They're demonized. They're seen as weaknesses. They're seen as manipulations. It's like people in relationships with malignant narcissists, if they get to the point of so much frustration, they don't know what to do with themselves. They get to the point of so much gaslighting, being so overwhelmed or being so exhausted by feeding someone else's ego that they just start to cry or they start to yell. And then that same person who has driven them to that point then calls them dramatic or says that their tears are just a manipulation. It's like her father telling her, you're being an attention seeker when she just was saying that she missed him. Can you imagine? sharing that feeling that's in your heart and then being basically verbally slapped across the face for it by the person who you say you're missing. 
There's so much about that that's wrong. There's so much about that that's hurtful and that's disorienting. And I think it is also a really important point that she said, I left the group a thousand times. I love that phrase. It's so true. It's true of people in systems of control. It's true of people in relationships with controllers. They have planned their escape. They've planned their goodbye letter. They've planned their goodbye speech. They've packed their bags. They're ready to go. And then they stay. And I know that I've done some videos and other things to explain why people stay. Why people stay in situations like this. You can check out any content that I've put out on any of my social media or check it out on my website. But there are a lot of reasons people stay. There are a lot of people who say exactly as she said. There are people who will say to me, listen, I'm really, really, really unhappy. Like people who are sent to me by their families or families who are really upset and worried about them being involved with a particular controller or being involved in a particular cult group. And the person in this situation will say to me, it's not that bad. I can handle it. I get a lot from it, or I don't think there's anyone else out there for me or any other place really for me. They've sort of convinced themselves or been able to be convinced that this is the only life they're able to have. This is the only life they deserve to have. This is the only place where they can get the answers or they can be happy. But truth is, it's where they're going to remain very unhappy. And so when I talk to people who are thinking about leaving, but just don't leave, I'll sometimes ask them, where do you think your life would be a year from now? If in the last year or more that you've been involved in something where you kept being told that you were supposed to be happy, but you really weren't, or you kept being told that the answer was right around the corner, but it just never came, or the promises that you were made just were about to come true, but still just never did. Chances are after the next year, it will be the same. And not only the same, but even worse. Because you'll be more exhausted. You'll be more disappointed. You'll feel more out of sync with the world, with other people your age who are not in these situations, who have moved on in their life. So if you are listening right now and you're considering staying in a situation where you've thought to leave a thousand times, there's a reason you've thought to leave. And imagine yourself, if you can, a year from now what your life will look like, and it will probably look the same. And is that what you want? I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.